I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And, and we're, we're going, going around Springfield. Springfield. Ooh, that feels good. That great. Yeah, so you guys know that this is the new iteration of our Simpsons podcast, where we interview Simpsons folk about non-Simpsons things, because mm-hmm. it turns out... They're really talented. And they're real people. Yeah. I'm so excited. I mean, just up top. So now we're about a handful of episodes in mm-hmm. to this new series. And I don't know how you feel, Allie, but I feel like uh, the listenership has been responding really positively, which makes me feel real good. It makes me feel great. Listeners, give us a honk if you're driving. <laughs> Let us know. If you're horny or not. <laughs> um, but yeah, so far people have just been really, really nice about, you know, reaching out and sort of, you know, being as interested as we are, as we hoped they would be, of all these backstories of all these lovely, talented people. Absolutely. I'm very excited. So let's just jump in because I'm so excited to talk to our special guest today. I'll just go in. She is a writer currently on The Simpsons. Damn. And she has been a writer on The Simpsons for a while. I believe her title over there is Longest Serving Simpsons writer. Sounds so patriotic. Yeah, yeah. You get a pin and you, you know, have to surrender your gun. I don't know. Um, but she's also written on many other things that we will get into. Please, everybody, welcome Carolyn Omine. Hello. Hi, welcome. Hello. My title. Your title. <laughs> That's my honorific. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And when you go into a room at The Simpsons, everyone has to stand and salute. I've heard. Yeah, it's almost, it sounds like we have those, like, Superlative uh, <laughs> elections. You might as well. I missed out on dreamiest eyes, but yes, I yes, did yes. win. That went to Matt Selman. Yes, Selman won dreamiest eyes. Yeah, yeah. weirdly enough. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to go like um, the titles of you know a small government, which I feel like The Simpsons has like you know gone on longer than some small governments. Yes. Well, so I do. Could. I I make the guys refer to me as. Her Royal Highness. Yes. That's good. Her Royal I, Longest. I, I hear that title is open nowadays so yes, with Meghan Markle. So, hey, might as well move in while you can. Now's not the time, but what happened there? <laughs> you know, I think uh, there was some stress and, um, you know, some independence issues. Mm, I think yeah. it would be great if, like, the Cinderella story were... There was a part two where Cinderella just goes, this is fucked up. Yes. <laughs> and she and the prince, like, decide, yes. we're just going to uh, take this IP. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the opening of the Cinderella Go. sequel is that one interview with Meghan Markle <laughs> holding back tears, being like, it's it's just really difficult. Oh. <laughs> and everyone's like, Cinderella, get out of there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I cool. saw this. This It was like a cover of uh, that said is Meghan Markle's snack choice of snack the cause of <laughs> terrorism and I think deforestation and it was like because I guess avocados are problematic and oh she likes God. avocado toast and you could tell that the is had been sort of squished in there like wow. at first it was it just said Meghan Markle snack causes you know <laughs> and they had to, like God. all right we'll make it a question is oh, it yeah. is it doing this and has Greta Thunberg uh, weighed in <laughs> on the climate change wow. effects yeah, they were a little hard on her as someone who had one and a half avocados yesterday i feel like i cannot speak to this mm. i would like it if you would leave <laughs> <laughs> i'm growing an avocado tree so <gasps> So you're doing your part. You can come over. (laughs) I just want to dance around the avocado tree. There's 
I'm just doing my best to combat terrorism and deforestation. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Thank you for your service twice fold. <laughs> First for the Simpsons, second for avocados. Second for my one tree. So do terrorists hate or love avocado toast? I don't quite. Tweet at us. Yeah, let us know. I, don't, let us know. I, didn't, I didn't read beyond the headline. Good. Sometimes that's enough. Don't give them the clickbait dollars. <laughs> no. I want them all for myself. <laughs> We are very excited to not only talk about avocado toast and Meghan Markle, uh, but to do a bit of a deep dive into your origin story and uh, your time on The Simpsons, but also some of your earlier projects. Uh, But first, can you tell us about child, kid version of you and as uh, maybe a first time that you kind of got the I'm going to be in showbiz sparkle? Mm, Good question. Mm. Well, okay, I definitely, my favorite way of playing was just full-on make-believe. Even, I remember there were six kids in my family. And you grew up in Hawaii? I grew up in Hawaii. Okay. and a uh, cool place to (laughs) (laughs) make-believe. That's where I made believe that I would live. Yeah, absolutely. We had the, actually the coolest thing, we we lived in this house that had a hedge by a fence, and there was a space between the hedge and the fence. I mean, it was really tall and the fence. And there was like a little space between two trees. It it wasn't, you know, it just happened right. that it made a little door. And so we My would go favorite. in and we would sort of, that would be our the playhouse. The secret garden. Was, I was going to say the, the secret place. garden too. I mean, it wasn't a lot of space. It was, you know, we were so little, but we, you know, it was all very weak. Amazing. And we would find, oh, you know, there'd be a certain place where there was, because of the branches, we could make that a little you know cubby and or a little i don't know what you call that a little it, it was it was very that was very conducive to make believe and so i also just that was just what i really liked to do i we just played that kind of game so i think that was definitely a thing were you like that julia were you a very imaginative child i was i mean i was also obnoxious and was like y'all want to be in my play like i just was constantly like come on guys but i was just thinking as you're talking of sort of what was available to me when i was a kid in our backyard we um when i was around four or five moved into a house that already had like a little you know playhouse and that was so exciting especially at age five to like have my own little playhouse and then i just recalled as you were talking immediately after, like, I want to say about a year of that, um, the playhouse got uh, reclaimed by the Black Widows <laughs> and bugs and other things. And uh, we ha- signed a peace treaty between them. My sister and I were like, we shall never cross over. And they said, and we shall never cross. So I just, I only had a very small period of time in like a little playhouse. But then, of course, you uh, climb trees and you do other things and have an imagination. I just remembered like, and this was something that I... I in a writing class, somebody had given me a prompt, and it was brought back this memory, and I realized how formative this was. But there was a point where my brothers and sisters were, for some reason, not playing with me, and I was sort of being the outcast, and I was off to one side sort of crying. And mm-hmm. my uh, babysitter at the time saw that, and it wasn't – for the most part, they weren't parents in my age. I'm a little bit older than you. Weren't exactly uh, as – 
Helicopter. Helicopter. I remember them going like, get out and stay out yeah. for five. And then sometimes, because it was Hawaii, it was hot. We'd be like, can we come back? No. Like, <laughs> we yeah. need shade, We please. want to be in the house. Get out. Find something. That's yeah. why we found the space between the hedges. But uh, <laughs> I was being ignored. And for some reason, she saw this. And for some reason, it hit her. And she said, Carolyn, come inside. And she took me inside. And she was a sewer. Mm. And she just dug through this thing. And she just found this piece of something. It was probably, I don't know, some kind of nice evening gown. It was sort of chiffon had a little bit of sequins along mm-hmm. the edge. It might have had a like a sort of opaque underpiece. It was a piece of a dress. And she goes, here, you can have this and you can play with this. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> and I like I just thought it could be a, I could wrap it around yes. myself. I could put it on, and I I came out, and it was like, oh, I I got this. And like everybody <laughs> was so interested, and like, what what is it? And I was like, well. And then some people were trying to be like, well, it's not that great. And then I had to kind of go, no, oh, no, but it is, it is a cape. Yeah. And it is a thing. And then like, and then I just started in order I to sort of sell it. it to them. And I, I think I succeeded because I remember them being like, okay, well, well, can we, can I play with it next? And like, <laughs> even the guys. And I was just like, uh, yeah. And I, I just think about that moment and how much I love that scrap of fabric because love it was it. this little, uh, you know, I don't know, this this little strength that I had that yeah. day. And uh but I did um I, at ten I do I actually wrote a play. Tell us about it. Called, it was called How Christmas Came to Be. I'm sure <laughs> there were other versions. And I stole very much from other <laughs> from TV shows I had seen or other Christmas that's specials. Art, yeah, I mean that's, that's all. Right. That's the hallmark formula. Yeah, you know they just it's like they put it into an algorithm now. We didn't have a theater or anything, and it, it was really like I, I I really don't even fully remember how. I do remember it was Miss Hirano. She gave us the go ahead, and so I gave us a little bit of time after lunch and. I we put it on and we we, we wow. rehearsed it for a couple of weeks and then we put it on for the rest of the school and, and that when it was a new school too so because um, I'd moved to this place called Pearl Ridge and it was a brand new elementary we didn't even have a real cafeteria that would sort of bring in temporary things so we were there were you know those portable classrooms so it was like wow. right. bare bones. But we like just okay we emptied out one of those classrooms pushed all the things to the side kids sat on the floor. And it was actually, you know, I remember it being very magical and great. That's oh amazing. But, uh, it's like Rushmore. It's amazing. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> how did your parents react to this and how much were they encouraging you through all of your kind of creative moments? I have to say my parents were not that, uh, I don't even know if they knew about it. When That's I amazing. Think about it. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Uh, it's, my parents were not very, my dad was I think dads today are so much more involved, but my dad was not very involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was there, but he just, and this is my stepdad. And my mother didn't, I remember like, here's the other thing. I think my creative thing started, I was a, a liar. And I remember like. <laughs> Me too. And this is like, just your imagination yeah. activating. Yes. And mm-hmm. I remember at one point at, when I was a kindergartner telling my mother, like she was just asking me how I was doing at school, and I was like, "I'm doing so good um, that <laughs> they're letting me do cafeteria duty, which <laughs> they didn't let kindergartners do." Yeah. But I just watched it as a kindergartner, what? Because especially when you know, like, you don't get to do that till like second grade, and I was like, "Oh, that's the best thing." But I remember, like, 
thinking, so I told my mother, I lied to her saying that, yeah, I'm just so good that they... <laughs> They've made me an honorary uh, cafeteria worker. And I even told her we would get these almond cookies. I don't know if you know these Chinese almond cookies. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And they usually have a little red dot in the middle. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what. I'm sure it's some cultural significance. I told my mother that was my job. No! <laughs> that is so I we invented post-its. That I, I love put it. the red dots. That's amazing. That, that was my wow. job. Because she was like, what could you do? I'm like, well, you know this red dot? Like, we, I, my job That's is me. to put the red dots. That is so funny. You know, that just, trained you for a lifetime in the biz, I want to say. Like, but it just shows how, like, my mother was not that connected. I love it. That that she so never funny. got confirmation or, <laughs> you know, she just, like, well, you must be doing really well that they're yeah. giving you such an important job. I used to work in cafeteria duty, um, I want to say, when I was in third grade, and it was the best time of my it's life. It's so fun. Why is it's it so fun? so fun. One of the things that you have to do is you empty out. Uh, all of the different liquids, which would be chocolate milk, regular milk, and then orange juice into one big bin of like <laughs> this like collective. Yeah. I don't even know what color that makes. It's yeah. not nice though, no. but still fun. Super fun. <laughs> I, I love just dishing out treats for my peers. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely lied in a creative way as well. Like not in a way that hurts anybody type of lying, but like I definitely would always brag about what celebrities were going to come over to my house for dinner. (laughs) I would definitely, now it's a little different story, but I would always say like, Michael Jackson's coming over later. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, But then for years I got, I think I would also lie to a point where I believed it. I had this blazer that my dad wore for an ACDC costume, an Angus Young costume, and I wore it to school almost every day, and I said, like, that's actually Angus Young's jacket. And all of the, <laughs> like, all of the 11-year-old boys thought it was the coolest thing. Of course. And they would be like, can I wear it? And I'm just like, if you give me your lunch, or like, if you wow. if yeah. you say you like, like me. <laughs> that is such a <laughs> cool lie. That, that is a cool lie. I'm so sorry to anyone that uh, I hurt in the process. <laughs> I, um, while we're on the subject, I'm recalling that I made up a boyfriend um, in <laughs> middle school, sixth grade, and it was a very low stakes lie um, because it was just you know, like, who's going to press me? We're also in sixth grade. Like, yeah. <laughs> who, who's dating? Um, but I made up this lie that I had a boyfriend named Trent, which is a very obvious Daria. connection from Daria. <laughs> and I, it was around yearbook time, and I just remember being like, yeah, you know, Trent, he's my boyfriend. So um, he doesn't go here, but, like, he signed my yearbook. Um, and they're like... Did you write it in your own yearbook? Yes. Ah! I wrote it in my own yearbook, but I was wise enough to use my non-writing hand and so it was he just like, looks very dumb yep <laughs> yep he did and I, you and didn't I, love him for his handwriting no I he was really you know easy on the eyes and I didn't we didn't have a correspondence you know um, and I just remember doing that and I forget even when I said like you're the best Trent and showing it to a couple people and them being not impressed but now I mean though, all those yearbooks are at my mom's and I'm like terrified to open the page you gotta take a picture see. and post it I will I will I will <laughs> That's amazing. Go over there. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting because, you know, I would say that Julia and I are of a generation and just specific background where, like, our dads were pretty attentive or at least, you know, prominent in our... Influential. In, yeah, influential. Um, definitely had... Uh, you know, but I will say, at times, I was a little bit more of a latchkey kid. Like, there was definitely no one home for long periods of time that I could remember. But I was always safe and stuff. But I'm wondering, you know, um, you know, you're a parent now. I'm wondering the differences in... Um, 
how much kind of space you give your son. And if you think based on comparing your creativity to his, I guess, do you think there's a difference between how attentive you are? Is there is there a formula of like if you're giving them space to do their own thing, they end up being more creative? Or if you're really honing their craft, maybe they get better. Do you have any feelings on kind of the... I know it's a big general discussion point, but I'm just yeah. kind of curious. I mean, you know, I mean, I definitely am not of the mindset of like kids these days. Or I, I feel like it, we've just been getting better and better. And it seems and, that way. That's yeah, great. I think so. And I think that like I like seeing you know the dads that are like. I mean, really, when I was, if my dad had come to like everything, it would have been like. Oh. I mean, there were, I think there probably was a couple like, why is his down here? You know, or like, I do think it's very good for the kids. And, uh, you know, but as far as creativity, you know, it's such a crazy thing. And I actually did have a whole bunch of, I was going to talk more about creativity too. All this crazy stuff. But with a child, I feel like with my kid, it's like trying to catch a butterfly sometimes. I've often found sometimes, I would, I will just kill his creativity by like, he'll do something. I'll be like, Oh, do you like that? Let me, let me buy you a, a paints for that. And let oh, me, you know, right, and then I'll right. be like, I don't want it anymore. And like, I have to, so I have to kind of like oh, sort of see yeah. it out of the corner of my eye. Like, okay, that's happening. I'm going to, I'm not going to be too excited about it. I'm not right. going to discourage that's it. A, like, that's, a, that's a dance. That's definitely that's a dance. hard. It's very, very hard to Man. like, uh, get too excited about, and it's hard because. I think my kid, and you know, that's his particular thing. For a long time, he couldn't. I couldn't watch him do stuff. I could watch, but I'd have to be, yeah, hidden. And we we knew this. And then, like, luckily at the school, they sort of because they have these. They make the, they make the kids get up in front of other people so often, and the kids are so relaxed now. Mm. I mean, when I think about, we would have like. At later in the year, you're going to have to stand up and talk in front of everybody. And I would, you yeah. know, have heart palpitations sure, it's leading up to things. it. But in this school, you know, and maybe it's just all they just make them get up. And so he's fine with it. But mm-hmm. I have to hide. He's yeah. just standing yeah. up going, good evening, sharks. They just make <laughs> yeah. them pitch on Shark Tank all the time. And this this was like <laughs> a thing that um, I don't know why. It's just, it's just something that it's makes me laugh. Um going to his little birthday circle. And this was very young again. This is probably his, he was in kindergarten and he meant he could lead the class and we got to watch and I'd sit and like, they're like, now everyone go around and we're going to ask everybody what they like about Kai. And like, everybody's like, I like that you do Legos and you're a really good drawer. <laughs> like everybody would say all these great things. And then this one kid, they go, and Sam. And he goes, pass. <laughs> And it just made me laugh so much that I was, and I was trying not to laugh. And I knew I should have been mad, but I just also love that they were like, "Okay, I." You know, he doesn't want to wow, <laughs> that is a future entrepreneur. That is a future founder. That is a future yeah. boss. And that's the thing you really realize about kids at that age. Pretty much every kid that was that he ever had a problem with would eventually become one of his best friends. Mm-hmm. It it almost seems cliche, but it just sort of yeah always happened. And uh, yeah, as a person who once was a kid and also now has a kid, do you feel like your 
ability to write uh, for the voice of Bart and Lisa has been uh, has influenced or been changed uh, by becoming a parent? Or do you think that you've always kind of been able to tap into like, well, they're, you know, they're Bart and Lisa. They're part of us all, a part of us all, yeah, a part of yeah. us all. Because I feel like, you know, it's it's always weird to me when people feel like they can't understand how to write for a woman or they can't understand how to write for a kid because it's just like, well, we're all humans. There's something right. human about all of us. But I'm wondering, have you felt there been a, a shift in your writing from when you started, not even just The Simpsons, but just has it changed through this perspective of parenthood? I definitely think so. Um, it's good. I think you have both because, I mean, of course, <clears throat> you could always write for kids because everybody's been a kid. There was this one idea that was like, it was such an interesting thing, and I don't know if we captured the depth of it <laughs> in the in the in the episode. But I did an episode where Homer remembers that Grandpa had given away his dog when he was a little kid. Because I had that exact experience. When I pitched it, I didn't realize how, like, I'm reading my pitch in front of this everybody, and I was like, and then... They give the leash to the dog. No, and, and I broke out crying, and I was like, uh, and I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a cheat. And then um, the one kid was like, pass. <laughs> yeah, Jim Brooks. No, uh, no, I, it really felt like it kind of it kind of helped to sell it. Now I kind of think I want to break down crying in all of my pictures. But um, the aspect of it that I really liked was, okay, so this is my story, was we had a Pomeranian that was really, we loved her. Her name was Fuji. And we we lived in this one place in Eva Beach, and they actually had a custodian who lived there like Groundskeeper Willie. Not not based on, (laughs) you know, but it was very like that. And we took the dog on the, we were running around the school when it was closed, because we lived nearby. And Mr. Ornelas was there. And he loved the dog because mm-hmm. it reminded him of a dog that he had and he was just like he was this sort of older man and he was just like oh he just loved Aww. her loved her loved her and then I uh, went back to my house <laughs> I'm trying to make this story short uh, and many like a month or two later he showed up at my house with all this like $250 and wants to buy the dog and because he loves her so much and reminds him so much of this dog and I was like at eight years old, I didn't. My I thought the equivalent of "fuck you," yeah, like you know, right. that's my dog. What the fuck, you know? Yeah. I was really furious, and I was like, and I hated him. Then flash forward, we we move and we live in this other part of town, we're a different school, and the dog keeps running away. And at one point, the dog runs away, and just because he's in the backyard, it, she liked to run, and gone for like a month and then we find her up the street we see her in somebody else's yard we're like oh that's our dog and then there's like a troubled teen who'd gotten very attached to the dog and threatened our dog was like i'm gonna kill this dog if i see it because he was like didn't want to give it up and like and so if you ever you know i'm sure he didn't but he was upset and he was like if i see that dog and you know and then she got out again and we're like so my parents go we should give the dog to Mr. Ornelas, the custodian. And I was like, no, no. And I hated my mother and I hated my dad and I hated Mr. Ornelas. And I cried for the dog like forever. And then I, even when I was starting to get over it, I'd be like, don't get over it. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. You got to hold on to this. Being sad about this. And uh, 
it wasn't until as an adult looking back, I one day realized, and, and then I went to go visit Mr. Ornelas, and he changed her name to Lonnie, and she was really fat, and she didn't like us as much as she liked him, and it was really <laughs> heartbreaking. And so the whole thing I was trying to show with that was that when I was an adult, it was really weird. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And then all of a sudden I thought back as an adult and I could see my childish emotion. But I also could see like, oh, my parents actually did the right thing. And actually, it's really great that Mr. Ornelas right. got to have this dog and he loved it. And it was it was like this win-win all around. But like I couldn't see it as a kid. And for the longest time, I still had this even as an adult, like this anger at my parents for what they did. Yeah. And so I was trying to show that moment where like Homer realizes at a certain point, mm. oh, yeah, because in, in ours, it's like Mr. He, the dog had bitten Mr. Burns and we right. had to get rid of the dog or it was something was going to happen. And uh, that, you know, sort of saying like most of the the tension between Homer and his dad have come from this or it was just a little yeah. bit, you know, at least some part of it. And that just that moment of of looking back on a childhood memory with adult eyes. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's weird. Absolutely. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's such a good breakthrough to have also just because it's right. Even if you're not a child, there are so many moments where like you're not able to have the empathy or the ability for whatever reason uh, to get why people make the choices that they do. And it's, you know, it's such a good exercise mm -hmm. to be able to think of it as like, maybe someone was benefited right. by this thing that tortured me at the time, you know? Yeah. I think that's amazing. It's like twofold, where it not only helped you in your personal understanding of how the world works and your personal understanding of being this adult perspective that then helps you relate to your parents. Like, personally, as an armchair therapist, you're doing great. <laughs> Four stars. But also in being a TV writer and especially in being a TV writer that focuses on, you know, personal stories and the best stories and the best episodes of The Simpsons and part of why we love it from, you know, we'll shout from any mountain high is the ones that have that like depth of that resonance in you can tell whoever wrote it is pulling from their own experience or it's based on these truths that couldn't be made up. And um, I love that you bridged those moments in pitching for the show and, and found that truth for it and cried. And cried. <laughs> I would have cried, too. So good. <laughs> and you know what? I'm I'm all for crying in a public, in a workspace. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it was a little bit of a cheat. I kind of felt like it was a little bit. It's kind of like laughing at your own jokes. Right. To cry at your own sad part. But I, I think I also was like, you know, we always... The night before the pitch outs, we stay up a lot. So I, we, there was a little bit of also like, I'm so tired. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And the nerves are really, the nerves are ratcheted high and you're it's just like. like the Bachelor contestants. It's yeah. like, the ba don't even get me started on the Bachelor contestants. I love the Bachelor. Everyone knows this about me. I, I, or soon will. My niece uh, who moved in with me, uh, she liked the Bachelor and I was trying to be like. It's kind of like when you watch somebody else's soap opera and where you're like, oh, this is so silly. And then and all then of a sudden you you're like, you're wait, what happened? Why <laughs> exactly. is she? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to be the biggest snob about that type of stuff. I always saw it as just kind of like a show for dumb people. I was right. really, really mean about the types of things people consume and, and that 
I thought everything had to identify everybody. Like if you wear this, you're right, blah, right. blah, blah. Like I always thought like, who are the people that even watch that show? And then Julia was just like, I watch that show. I was like, what? And then yeah. I watched it and I love it now. Yeah. And so I've, it's, it's basically sports. I'm so happy to hear that. It's I've become a nicer person because of it. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> um, it, yeah. We watch it when it airs live and get a group together, which is weirdly male dominated. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't assume that it would be, but it's, you know, my husband's really into it. And then our friends and, you know, it's, it's, it's a great time, but also it, it is funny how it mimics sports in that way where we're all screaming at the TV at the same time going yeah. like, what? She got the group date? This is insane. <laughs> yeah, I can't even. And um, and I like it, too, because it's so different than what we do. So that's really fun to kind of take that break. But it also gets you worked up like a soap opera. Yeah. I, I always come away thinking because I always just make it about myself uh, but I always <laughs> think like I would be terrible Same. as one of the girl like or you know being one of the group yeah I would not be able to keep it cool if I like sort of develop feelings and then somebody right. else could, whatever I could not do that but I also think um if I were the bachelorette it would be the probably the one way I could find love yeah <laughs> Like, I well, you yeah, heard it love here it. first. Get the, the Fox is the, owned by Disney. Produce dates. Yeah. And like, I want a choice of like all these people. Absolutely. Trying. Let's all do it up. Trying for me. Let's do That's it so up. Funny. So, yeah. Fox is owned by Disney. <laughs> Disney owns ABC. Here I'm, we go. I'm smelling syn- synergy. They're casting people. <laughs> they They're are casting. all the time. Or if uh, somebody could just come up with some way to make like little local bachelors. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, uh, just for some reason. Maybe I could offer some kind of cash prize. Just okay. something to get people, a bunch of people uh, motivated to try. Listeners, if anyone is interested, uh, leave us a comment uh, uh, during the break. We'll be right back. All right, Adam. uh, Maximum Fun wants us to record like a promo to tell people that they should listen to The Greatest Generation. You want to do that? No, I am tired of all the extra work. I just wanted to talk about Star Trek with my friend. I, I think it, it would be good to like try and get some new listeners by appealing to the audiences of other shows. Like this, this will only take a minute or two. It could be good for us. We sit down for an hour every week and talk about a Star Trek episode and make a bunch of idiotic fart jokes about it. It's embarrassing. If it got out that we made this show, I think it would make us unemployable. Adam, I have bad news for you. We have tens of thousands of listeners at MaximumFun.org. Oh, my God. I think I'm going to throw up. The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. Every Monday on MaximumFun.org. I'm really going to be sick. And we're back. And we're back. What a great break. So many people looking for love. So many people that are applying directly to us um, (laughs) to do this, um, I'll call an experiment, but a worthy experiment. You know what? We actually at one point really wanted to do this and then didn't, but maybe we should. Uh, We wanted to set up Simpsons fans with each other. Right. Um, because we think it's very important that you have at least that in common. Yes. Um, for me, I've talked on the previous podcast about how when I was on a dating app 
called OKCupid, I would have the username um, could eat at Arby's uh, and, a few, <laughs> and a few other Simpsons names that I wanted to do were taken. Like I, I think there was like I washed myself with a rag on a stick. Right, and right, like, right, right, uh, right. You know, uh, I think it, like even things that were really it's weird. Like some people who don't know the Simpsons who are like, this yes. is my kind of girl. I know, I know. Well, I she... also wash myself. I would get a lot of people talking about roast beef to me, not getting that it was the Simpsons things. And so my my opening line on my app was just or my bio was just like. Uh, Stop messaging! Stop messaging me about roast beef. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Simpsons reference, yeah. But you have married a carrot. My sister's oh, uh, yeah. my sister's Twitter handle is uh, married a carrot. Yeah. Uh, there are a few other names I was looking at. I wish I could remember them, but um, I would look at those profiles to see who took them. I'm just like they seem like they'd be my friends. I, I will say <laughs> that I have locked down ghostmutt eight one eight at oh, gmail dot com. So good. So if you want to email me at an email address <laughs> I haven't thought about since this moment uh, in a while, then you could do that. But ghostmutt is one of my favorite uh, little March lines. <laughs> it's just so funny. Back to the realm of uh, creativity and where it comes from. Did you say that you had something that you kind of wanted to touch upon? I will say I'm a big fan of John Cleese. Totally. And so I've been watching a lot of uh, John Cleese interviews and things like that and um, just sparked a lot of things in me. One of the things I think was another formative thing for me was uh, I was a design major and they made us read this book by Edward de Bono called Lateral Thinking. And I'm, have you ever heard of lateral no. thinking? Sometimes people use it as like sort of a cliche like, oh, I'm creative. I'm lateral thinking. <laughs> and uh, basically what it is is uh, just in the broadest nutshell for this most times you, you come up with a solution, you go, okay, all right, got that. Now, the next step, okay. And then here, and you know, you kind of go in a linear way. But if you allowed yourself to go, okay, all right, like, uh, I don't know, we're going to put up a bookshelf. Okay, what, where shall we put it? First, we got to decide where to put it. Okay, that seems like a good place. That would sort of, you know, that would be right. the first step. But instead of going, okay, we got the first step down, go, okay, where else could we put it? Yes. We could put it here. Okay. What if you told yourself, I'm going to find five places, I have to fill in five, you know, options before we decide, you might be really surprised on, mm -hmm. on four, you know, and, and that goes for all kinds of things. And it's kind of baked into a lot of what we do in rewrites, mainly because we are often like a showrunner will say, I want betters on this joke. And so mm -hmm. you're and they leave and you you can't just like if the person was there, sometimes you would go, well, how about this? OK, good. No, get in. But right. usually what we have to do is go, OK, we, we come up with a joke. OK, that's good. We like that. Let's come up with some more. You would come up with like five jokes because we need to give them some options. And sometimes you'd be really surprised at what number four is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's often this point, it's a good exercise also just because sometimes you kind of go, you you say one, you do, you got three and you go, okay, I think that's it. Like, I think, you know, <laughs> the bottle is empty. I think we've done all the jokes. And then you realize, no, we need two more. Like, yeah. all, right, all right, well, it's crazy, but let's just think some more. And you will come up with some more. And so uh, I feel like that idea of lateral thinking has and having to read that book. And I highly recommend it if anybody, because yeah. I felt like it was a big uh, life changer for me. And hearing John Cleese talk about creativity, he talks about getting into that. You know, there's there's two modes, open and closed. Right. Like when you're open is when you're playing and you can 
embrace the absurd and you can sort of, as long as you kind of gently keep bringing yourself back to the subject, you can kind of play around. There, there does come a point where you have to go into the other mode, the closed mode where you're editing and, and, and formatting and moving things around. And I do think that's really important to keep those two separate. Mm-hmm. Like when you're sometimes like when you're when you're trying to generate the thoughts, that's not the time to go. Yeah, it seems a little long. We're, you know, you have to like, no, just keep doing it. We'll find the ways to fit it in if it's too long after. Um, so and he has this whole how I'm sorry, my papers. No, it's um, OK. He, that, you know, the ways that you can get into this open mode. Um, first of all, I have a create a space and we had talked about mm-hmm. <laughs> we talked about this before about um ways that you can create this space and ways mm-hmm. that you can create this moment or this launching into this open mode and uh sometimes there's special writing pants i have that uh, <laughs> have worn out uh, elastic a thing i'm doing right now lately i once there was a noise of, oh uh, by my neighbor's house it was like this and I wasn't sure if it was I had tinnitus or <laughs> if it was outside. And then I, I realized, okay, no, it is it is outside. So I had these wax earplugs and I stuck them in. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, good, the sound is gone. And then I just started writing. And I a little while later, I was like, whoa, I'm really dialed in. And I since then got a bunch. I've got these wow. these I think they're called Quiro. Q U I R O, but they're they're wax with a little cotton in them, and so they're very comfortable. <laughs> and you put them in, and now they have become for me. I'm just like, okay, now it's time to write. And I put them in, and I actually kind of feel this sort of dialed in. I love That's it. amazing thing, and and it's not so loud that people. I mean, it's it's pretty good. You can hear a fire alarm. You yeah. wouldn't die because yeah. you're wearing yeah. it. Like, <laughs> I think the very act of doing that for yourself, and that's what I think is really the basis of all these actions, is like the act of doing it sets your mind psychologically into the mode. Yes. So if you're putting on the pants, if you're sitting down at the desk, for me, it's going to a mall, mm-hmm. <laughs> going to places where people aren't normally writing their screenplays right. might feel special. Right. Um, those are the kind of things that I think cue your brain to go, you're treating me nice. Okay, I'll respond. Accordingly. Yeah. Right now, there are a lot of podcasts that will kind of help you with being productive. And a lot of the things that come up, no matter which podcast you're listening to, is going to be this idea of deep work, uh, yeah. which is what you're kind of the touching flow. on. Just keeping this flow going and not interrupting it. And right now, I guess for a long time, the idea of multitasking was really big and sexy. And now we're kind of learning more that you actually can't really multitask. Yes, you can watch TV and fold mm-hmm. laundry, but you can't do two things that, like, I can't read um Twitter and then also host a podcast unless I'm kind of sucking at both. Like, I wouldn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm glad you brought it up, Allie. If that's uh, your goal, then go for it. Uh, but Carol and I are going to host from now. <laughs> That'd be great. People would love that. I think we all Can I come on? Well, you just have those, <laughs> we'll like, see. 
every but there's the one person who is just reading Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I um I think it's so good for uh, listeners of the podcast who are kind of like, how do I be more productive? And the answer is kind of like just do your job and don't get distracted because like you know. It, think of it as what you're saying where like there's that open space where you're not supposed to kind of shit on anyone's idea you're just supposed to kind of let the ideas come up and then later you'll edit just think of like your phone as being the person shitting on your idea <laughs> like yeah. because it's it's shutting down your creative flow and it actually i i don't have the numbers in front of me but i it was it's very interesting to see how many minutes it actually takes you uh, i think in one case it was like an hour it could take you to reset your brain just by checking one email. Like, so yeah. if, mm-hmm. if you're writing and then you're just like, oh, got to check this, it takes you much longer than the actual physical action to, right. to yeah. get back into it. And it's hard, I think, especially for a lot of people, myself included, but a lot of people that I know that listen out there that are um, freelancing, uh, are, you know, trying to rise up the ranks as a writer. And so um, timeliness and responding to emails is key. So you, you truly never know if, like, the big opportunity is going to come in and n- this isn't always always the case, but it always feels like, well, if I hadn't responded within an hour, then, you know, X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened. And so that's very hard, I think, to go, I'm going to turn off my email for six hours or however long, and, and everything's going to be okay. Um, but how I personally sort of like meet in the middle for that is I'll do writing sprints, which I know a lot of other people yep. do, and set my timer for like 30 minutes if I'm feeling saucy or <laughs> longer. Um, but 30 minutes is usually um, the like time that I feel I can effectively like really get into that deep work and I'll put um, do not disturb my phone I'll put it out of sight maybe I'll put it in another room I'll you know put on music that I know isn't going to distract me and make me go like I don't like this song like just <laughs> it's usually Beatles or something and that's usually when I text Allie and go the Beatles are good Allie and she I'm goes, like I know I know stop <laughs> eat stop texting me this but, but uh, that's and then I'll reward myself with a check of the phone but maybe be selective about what I do and be like I'll just check email just to see if nothing burnt down. Nothing burnt down? Great. Or I'll play a game on my <laughs> phone or something uh, to reward yourself works personally for me. And I think you can, you know, that's more effective than I feel like no structure or no focus in that way. I definitely do that too. Mm-hmm. I love timers and like yeah. doing half an hour. You know, I'll do like half an hour on, 10 minutes doing something else. Right. But I, I do think sometimes you do need that big chunk for, yeah. for me. I, I every yeah. once in a while need a big chunk. And sometimes that's probably best to and that's why I tend to write really yeah. late at night sometimes mm-hmm. and really where it's just like okay there's there's no yeah. you know because sometimes it's hard because like most of the times when you're writing there is also the looming deadline and for me really like I if I don't have the looming deadline sometimes it won't push me to write mm-hmm. but you can't it's kind of this balance between it's good to have the deadline cuz that kind of you know puts a little fire under your ass but it also that that deadline that, oh, I got to get this done, is not the open mode. That is the closed mode. And no. also, you know, you're like, oh, I gave myself the 30 minutes to think and nothing came. And, like, you have to kind of, like, be gentle with yourself and know that, like, okay, you, you spent the time pondering. It will sometimes just come to you. If you if you spend the time, like, if you do spend that 30 minutes, like, thinking yeah. about it, and else, maybe it might not happen. And, and try not to panic and know... I always say, 
I'm marinating. And um, it, it, some of, sometimes I am uh, procrastinating, and that's my lie to tell people <laughs> when they've come home. Like, you they, need ideas to gestate, you know, <laughs> yes. truly. But I really do think it, it does. I think mm-hmm. there's like sometimes it's uh, uh, my, I, my friend Cynthia Bond, who is a beautiful writer, and she described it once as like um, when you get a knot in a really fine chain, Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sometimes you, you just very carefully try and, oh, wait, this is got to tighten mm-hmm. up, unloosen this part and unloosen this part. And, like, really, once you get the first two, it, it, you know, yeah. like, at first it feels like this is impossible. This, right. I should just throw this chain away. But, you know, like, you just get a couple things going and then all of a sudden it's like, blah, blah, blah. It, yeah, all, totally. it all works. Yeah. And uh, you have to just it's, – it's hard to not get into the the – Oh no, everyone will laugh at me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mode. Especially since, you know, what you're writing is hopefully going to see an audience. And of course, at The Simpsons, you know it's going to. So it's it's hard to not feel that pressure. I'm really intrigued by what you said earlier about the fourth or fifth joke is the most surprising and how that has affected your own creative process. Do you do that in your own, like when you're working on your draft by yourself? Do you try to do better or do you kind of trust that that's going to be a stage that you're going to arrive to or I don't know how how does that affect your writing process well um every once in a while I don't usually in, in my first draft I don't won't usually put better sometimes I will for like a title or something like sometimes we, we know um and 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 even the title of the show you know that's another like I'll sometimes be thinking of a the Simpsons. The, the, the Simpsons. That's, <laughs> all right. It's going to be the, that's, this week. That's, let's put a pin in that one. But what else could it be? Uh, but uh, I will sometimes do betters. But I, I tend to, with the jokes, have done a bunch. And here's a concept we do at uh, work at, in the room. And it really has been a revelation is that we have this thing called jewels. So I have for every They're script. Illegal we now. get it. You're rich. <laughs> we vape all the time. We, yeah, we did. We Different yes, we vape and with our diamond crusted uh, vapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> where we open a, a document, so every script I have has whatever the dog story jewels, and so I will come up with several things, and then I'll put one of them in, and I'll take the others, and I put them in the jewels. And also, when I'm editing, I'm like, oh, this great little bit, but. Uh, there's no room. It's got to go. Yeah. And I will put it in the jewels. And Love that. I And I think that, like, and only rarely have we gone, wait, we've got that thing. Go back to right. the jewels. Every once in a while you do. Yeah. But I do think that just having that document makes it easier to, to cut. cut and put yes. it over there because it's like, I'm not throwing it away, yes. which yeah. is sometimes very hard to do. Or putting the babies outside of the bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The babies We're are in a the nice babies. little side bath <laughs> yeah. where yeah. they're going to live forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it really does help. And, yeah. and it does give you that. And, and it has, there have, especially for things like titles or sign jokes or, you know, what the name of this company is going to be. Right. Like, I will have stuff. like, yeah. yeah, I will have come up with like several of those things and then when we get the note, like, uh, and change d- different different name for the company, and I'll be like, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, like, yeah. and sometimes some of the other ones will make it. I do the same exact thing. I should start calling it Jules because it's more positive than scraps. It's also your name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also my name. That's right. Uh, Jules, I, Jules. Ooh, hello. I, I smell a good place uh, business <laughs> if there ever was one. Um, I, I, yeah, I put everything into a scrap pile, and, you know, it, 
I agree with you. It's like more peace of mind because I do very rarely go back to that scrap dock. Um, <laughs> but just having it allows me to go, okay, that wasn't wasted. And, you know, I'll even do that with like full outlines of a thing. I'll be like, I'll have moved on from that version of the story and then I'll find that old outline. I'll be like, do I need to read this again maybe to get something? And I go, no, the process of writing it, I think, unlocked what eventually came to pass with it. But yeah, I think it's really important just to not judge yourself when you have to cut things and Mm -hmm. not judge yourself for forming a Jules document and just knowing that it's there. Yeah. 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 I feel like there are people listening that are super excited at the idea of there being all of these possible Simpsons jokes that they'll never get to see. <laughs> like, to me, I think that's very That'll exciting. Be the next there's like, there's a thing deal. of jewels. <laughs> um, so we're, we're right now talking about kind of some, some tips and tricks and philosophies about uh, writing and how to improve upon writing. But you were a design major. I know that you also were a performer of sorts. How on earth did you end up becoming a writer? How did you get to Uh, from someone who was, you know, always kind of seemed to love some form of uh, creativity. You were writing plays. But how did you become a TV writer? What got you there? So I I did a lot of plays in, uh, well, starting at the end of my high school year, my senior year of high school, I did some plays. And then I did some plays in the University of Hawaii where they let me. um, I was a design major because I thought that was the more commercial degree to have that if I had a, you know, graphic design degree, I could, you know, put together ads or things. But I was really interested in theater. And in at Hawaii, I could take as many theater classes as I wanted. So that's I was, how it should be. It should be. <laughs> I, so I was basically like the people there thought I was a theater major, too. I just didn't think I didn't think that, a you know, like I didn't think if I went to an audition and I didn't get it, I could go, oh, well, uh, perhaps you didn't see my B.A. <laughs> uh, so oh, uh, everybody shut the doors. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was I, I really enjoyed it. I was in main stage theater productions. I took all the acting classes. I took some directing classes. It was, you know, and just and stagecraft. It was all very interesting. And then I transferred to UCLA. I was still a design major, but they are very closed. You cannot take unless you you. I would have to have made the bummer. decision to. So I I didn't, but I still had this yearning for it. And then I saw this ad where this um, person, Steve Mazur, was uh, who later went on to be a he wrote Liar Liar for Jim Carrey and so cool. uh, Little Rascals movie and oh, a bunch of other things. I'm sure I'm leaving out a big one. Oh yes, uh, David Merkin's movie that he did with. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt and and Sir Gordon Weaver. I can't remember the name of the movie. Heartbreakers. Yes, yes. Yes. Steve actually wrote that movie. My dad plays guitar in that movie. (gasps) Oh, what? What? (laughs) I'm what? Yeah, he uh, he's it's you know it's really too bad. My dad is an exceptionally talented guitarist, uh, but then as are you. Oh, thank you. But I look. I want like a compliment trash. too. <laughs> and you have beautiful glasses. Thank you. Uh, I'm a really I'm a really d- decent guitarist, whereas my dad is truly exceptionally gifted. Um, and he played uh, the guitar in a song that was in like the credits or in the actual movie. Oh wow, cool. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was friends with Anara George, um, who is. Uh, the Bird and the Bee, uh, oh, yeah. really great band that I recommend everyone listen to. But yeah, they have my a really great Hollow Notes cover. Yes, they album. do a whole album. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, that is my association <laughs> with, that with Heartbreakers. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so so you saw an ad. Oh, so it was Steve Mazur had started a an improv group that 
met at Kirkhoff Hall, which is like the student. It's kind of a like a, there's a, it's like a coffee area, and then there's a little stage, and so That's there was cool. there was a little. He he got a little like meeting hall and we would go and you could meet and you could do improv and then if you thought you were up to it we would then all perform mm-hmm. at, in this coffee house which was great there was occasional you know that like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. frothing the milk sound. keeps you honest yes but the thing was there were some really terrible people and I think that's actually really great because there's an improv exercise called actor's nightmare where somebody has a playbook and you open the play and you to some random page and that one person is reading he's not improvising he's just reading the parts and you're having <laughs> to justify everything and it's really that's amazing it's a really good yeah. uh, exercise and we had a man leonard was his name who we later found out was actually coming to us had a night pass from ucla's psychiatric ward and he was like a resident who was I guess okay, right. well behaved enough that he could so cool. come and <laughs> he he would sometimes be very nonsensical. He was very sweet and had had he just seemed to really enjoy it. I think he really liked it. But he was very strange and would sometimes get up and just do like, you know, you open a scene with space work, you know, mining <laughs> yeah, yeah. stuff. He would it would be like, what is is that like you know, he'd be pulling <laughs> levers and, and petting things up at the top. You it's know, like, what's and, in your head? And you'd have like, don't go too far before you have to like, you have to label that. Yeah. And then it was it was a really good exercise, and I I think it was just anyway. I became very interested in improv, and then did other improv groups, did the Groundlings, and then we had our own little group that we were called Midnight Madness, and a woman um, named Nancy Steen, who uh, whose brother was in the group. Uh, she liked the scripts that I wrote and uh, the sketches that I wrote. And um, then I was also working in a literary agency. And at one point, Nancy Steen called and she she had written for Night Court and she was putting together a staff for a show on Fox. And she was looking for writers. And I said, oh, hi, Nancy, it's Carolyn. And she was like, oh, and then she, I transferred her to my boss, who was a very big writing, uh, television writing agent. His name is Rob Rothman. He's still my agent today. He came out and he said, oh, Nancy Steen said, you know, your assistant can write. And I said, well, you should hire her. And she said, well, tell her to write me a spec and I will. And then he said, oh, so I think you should go home and uh, I'll give you the next two days off and you can write a script. And I thought you could write a script in two days. And I actually, I had a script. I had done a lot of marinating on it. So I could, <laughs> I could write this. I, yeah. It was possible. I did write my script in two days because wow. I had, I had sort of been play. I, I remember I had played the, you know, asked people about, you know, the story and, you know, I had a bunch of feedback and, so I did write a script in two days, and he gave it to her, and she hired me on wow. staff. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. What and was that first job? It was called uh, Stand By Your Man, which was the American version of a British television series called Birds of a Feather, uh, about two sisters whose husbands go to jail, and mm. they have to move back in together. And our, our version starred Rosie O'Donnell and Melissa Gilbert. Wow. And that was a very strange... What a stra- pair. It was a very strange... What a pair. Uh, ...pairing. And, you know, Rosie was not in the best mood because Rosie had just... Uh, she'd agreed to do this and then got League of Her Own. Right. And so she was sort of like, 
But it was like, oh, you still got this, and yeah. you got this yeah. TV show that you're the not. The Melissa as... McCarthy effect with yeah. Mike and Molly. Except, yeah, except <laughs> it wasn't as good as Mike and Molly. Yeah. And so she was just, she was like not that, she wasn't feeling it. And so yeah. sometimes she could be a little grumpy. Although she was very nice to me. Mm, I like her. I used to go, or I used to watch her um, afternoon daytime talk show, mm-hmm. and uh, a key like great childhood memory that I have is going to a live taping of it with my mom and my sister. Aww. And uh, I, we almost caught a koosh ball, but we did not. <laughs> but we almost, we almost did. Dead. That was baseball for me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's so great. And so did that naturally lead to the next shop or did you have like a kind of a longer gap after that wrapped or, or what was that like for you? That one, it didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it went like 20 weeks. And then, yeah, the next job I got was uh, a show called, and I actually got on the next season. Oh, wow. And I think that was a function of, you know, I was very lucky because I had worked for and was very good friends with this really great agent. Mm -hmm. And um, so he became my agent. So he would go and and he has all these big names on his thing and they would go, well, who's this? And he, you know, the the one name I don't recognize. And he Mm -hmm. would say, oh, well, that's the hot new writer. He wouldn't say I was, uh, and he was also, I will say this too, like he was such a savior to me because he told me, because, you know, I worked 20 weeks and it was more money than I'd normally make, like by a lot, but it was 20 weeks. And then it's like, and there's no jobs until it's different now, but back then it's still, but it's a little bit like that. Where the staffing season was, that was it. If yeah. it was like there were no jobs to be had till May. So if your job finished in August or whatever, like there's no job right. till the next May. So um, Robin actually said, you know, you cannot work as a waitress or something because I don't want people to like see you. He was yeah. he, he actually because I had my whatever I saved up, but it wasn't going to last a whole year because. You know, coming right. from being broke and like, and so he he lent me some money That's to like. Amazing. I know he's very. It, I, I really do think that like he just saved my life. Oh and, my god, uh, that's unheard of. I, yeah, it is true. I, that's, that's how great you are. He well, invested in you. You know, and uh, it's, it's how great he is. Too. I mean, he actually there was after this. He he is one of the few agencies that has signed with the WGA, and I, I you know, they were he was he's been very that's great helpful in sort of. Bridging the, the and what agent. agency is that? Rothman Brecker, Eric Livingston. It okay. used to be the Rothman agency, but now he's, right, he's right, very right, right. generous. And so they did like a season four Mad Men. I understand. Yes. <laughs> and so now it's actually because of that they call it kind of looks like Rebel because oh, that's it, cool. it's R B E E L. I'm sure they love it. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, and they are a pure. They don't want to be a production company, and so they don't want to. They're not going to be doing things that are, you know, yeah. counter to the writers. Which a lot of management and agency types um, or businesses, I, I feel, are becoming that a little bit more because you know naturally they want to produce some of their clients' own work, and then that just becomes sort of part of their business, and it can be very distracting. I mean, that's fine. I, I, I love people wanting to produce their clients' work, and but they just have to keep it separate. Right. And that's, that's the thing. Just then have a production company and have yeah. that separate. But then there should be somebody who's who's looking out for you and mm-hmm. not and that doesn't have a an interest in the project that's counter to to your... Yes. Uh, Which is the crux of the um, conflict yes, with yes. the ATA. Yeah. Uh, let's actually take a quick break. Mission 
Control, this is Rocket Ship One. Come in, Mission Control. This is Mission Control, go ahead. We have incoming, and it looks big. Can you identify? It looks like some sort of pledge drive. Affirmative. It's Max Fun Drive. That's a verified Max Fun Drive. Countdown to Max Fun Drive is initiated. Can you project a time to intercept? Based on the current trajectory, Max Fun Drive will be here from March 16 to March 27. March 16 to March 27, roger. Rocket Ship One, can you confirm a visual on common Max Fun Drive phenomena, such as the best episodes of the year, bonus content, and special gifts for new and upgrading monthly members? We have a visual. Great episodes, bonus content, premium gifts confirmed, and more. Sure sounds quiet down there. Mission Control, what's your status? All systems go, Rocket Ship One. Just catching up on our favorite Max Fun shows so we can tune into Max Fun Drive episodes between March 16 and March 27. Over and out. <laughs> great break it's a wonderful break mm. <laughs> uh so ladies yeah let's talk about being ladies yes i am uh you know I, I think it's so exciting that we are talking to someone who is the as we said earlier the longest serving woman on the simpsons that's incredible i know that when julia and i first came out with our podcast one of the things that set us apart as you know being in a sea of simpsons podcasts is that we are two women hosting the show who also are in the industry and um think that even though we've come so far in many ways in terms of having uh, more representation that there's still you know there's still the not there's still yeah we're still mm-hmm. we're still growing and it's it's yeah. been an uptick but I want to hear from you you've been working you know for how many years now in the in, as a writer as a writer in general probably like 30 Hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, well, that's well, great. Yeah. Please enlighten us a little bit about your experience and kind of just, you know, what it's what it's like for you. I, I know that you can't speak for all women, um, but your experience. And then also, you know, if, if this feels like a natural place to go, the difference between, I know in, in acting, they, of course, like once you hit 30, you're just like, what am I going to do? Right, <laughs> you right. know, and so, uh, you know, people get aged out of stuff for, for on-camera roles, but i I have a feeling that also happens yeah. maybe even on jobs that aren't behind the camera. Can you speak to any of this? Yes. Ageism is real. And I really wanted to, to you know, it, it actually affects men and women and, and as far as writers go. There was actually a lawsuit a while ago. I mean, I, I would say like even in the 90s. So now they're they're not as blatant. Um, but I do feel in particular women should pay particular attention to this because, uh, women are considered over the hill at a younger age. You know, yeah. like I'm the writer's room is a lot more woke now, but I can remember when it wasn't. I remember many conversations of women being referred to as past their sell by date. <gasps> and that date was about 35 for women. And, ah! and it was about 40 for men. And working uh. in an in a agency, um, I saw a lot of that for, you know, as I saw a lot more with men because, especially back then, there were a lot less women writers. Um, but yeah, it's around around forty. It was getting really hard, and there was a common thing to like on people's resumes, like, "Oh no, no, no! You might have written on this groundbreaking classic television show." But don't put that on your resume because it will absolutely date you. And and that was and, you know, I I feel like there's like this okay boomer type of thing. You know, it's it's there is this thing with 
ageism and I, ageism is the one ism that if we're lucky, we will all experience. Yeah. And, yeah. um, that's true. You know, if you're ageist, you really are just attacking your future self. That's the, really the most funny. ageist people I know who, you know, when they were young, were like, what does she know? She's 30, right, whatever. Right. They have the hardest time dealing with themselves when they get older because they have all this negative shit uh, yeah. piled up. And it is... You know, diversity in the writer's room is always important. I think it's great to have fresh new voices, but it's also, you know, if you, it's in everybody's interest, even as a young person, to set up a society where we value experience and intelligence and, you know, because, and just sort of a, a, an emotional maturity. And, you know, that's not just, you know, like, buttering up and making that a pretty package. That is the actual truth. People are, Better there, especially in writing. And, uh, you know, I just remembered when Sarah Silverman, uh, in the, the James Franco roast, mm. she was, you know, she said she brushed off the, the things about her looks or her, her acting, but most of the takes on her were how old she was. And it was, it was very strange. And the same thing happened with Martha Stewart when she did the Justin Bieber roast. They, everything they just hit her with was like, Martha Stewart, she's so old. And it's like, there's, she's Martha Stewart. You've yeah. got the whole right. jail thing. You've got the <laughs> Martha know. Stewart. There's, there's a lot of rich areas. And uh, it just was like, women weren't the only people for whom time is moving forward. Yeah. And uh, I thought Sarah Silverman said, you know, it really was, it felt very, the attack felt very personal woman centric mm-hmm. and that it was, yeah. you know, because she she wasn't the oldest person on the panel. Of course not. At that point, she was 42. Her sin was staying alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and, and also ageism is a way that people tend to it's often about money. So I feel like we've done a lot to help get more women in at the beginning. And so there are a lot more people wanting to get their woman numbers up. And so they will hire a bunch of brand new people. And then, but we all want to have our second and third jobs too. And, and not just like, oh, we're only going to, we're only going to give everybody the first chance and pay that price. Right. And I mean, I do think that people are even willing to, you know, you know, take less or I don't know. But I also feel like the other thing about ageism is that this business is so hard to break into. And I know so many people that kind of gave up their dreams after a certain point because it's super talented people writing and performing who, you know, because it's like, well, if I don't make it by this age, then it's almost impossible to break in. And it it is very difficult. I, I had a friend of mine who uh, was up for a job and she had it was all blind. And she um, this was a, a researcher job. First. A blind submission. It was all blind submission. So nobody knew if you were a woman or a man or mm-hmm. and she was told like she was far and above the best. And she basically had the job. But then somebody else remembered meeting her at a WGA thing and they were like, oh, I think she's probably too old. And <gasps> oh, uh, my God. Yeah, and it it happens a lot, and so I I just so that's one thing. Like everybody, I feel like ageism has been a problem. And the other thing I think, um, 
that we where we lose a lot of our really great superstar women, and this is something I I was noticing even when I was working in an agency, is that the job needs to be a little more family friendly. Um, yes. There's there was a recent thing where Ava DuVernay and Amy mm, Poehler yeah. and uh, I wrote it down, but like they they're trying to get the union. Um, the WGA, I mean, no, this was the DGA, although I think the WGA should take note, um, to extend, I mean, it wasn't even asking for paid uh, leave, maternity for, leave. Mm-hmm. They were just asking that when a, a woman, even, or maybe even a, a father, who anybody who has a child, that they get an extension in the amount of time it takes for them to qualify for health care. You know, there's a certain minimum and you have to make it within a year to have health care. And if you're taking off time to have your baby and 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 be with your child, you know, it's going to be harder for you to make that minimum. And then you're going to lose your health care. Exactly. And that was which leads me to my one other soapboxy place is um, I do think that we we as artists should really push for health care as a universal right and, yes. and Medicare for all. Yeah. Um, because right now our, our unions, all unions, they spend so much of their negotiating power on health care. And it, it stuff that we, you know, we, we could be fighting for better wages, better working conditions. And with writers, we have all these other things, residuals and definitions of of certain things and, you know, positions. Things that have to do with writing. Yes. Your actual job, not the fact that you're alive. And ownership of your material and and all these things. And we can't really get them because so much is spent on this healthcare thing. But also, again, this is such a hard business. And we need to be able to have a little bit of freedom to move from job to job, which is is sort of anybody who wants to have a very artistically fulfilling career in this business. It's hard to do it when, for whatever reason, it, I mean, some, some, just in life, you need to have health care. But God forbid you have a pre-existing condition, you have cancer, you've been hit by a truck, yeah. anything. And then all of a sudden, I've seen that also happen where a lot of people's dreams have to die. Yeah. Or at least it's just like that is something we cannot do because I have to stay at this job with this health care. And I do think if we were to get universal health care and we can pay for it because if we shrink the military, yep. tax the rich, yep. make the pharmaceutical companies beholden to so they're not right. paying we're not Preach. paying thirty Preach. to one hundred and ninety percent more for pharmaceutical drugs than any other country. We can pay for this. And if we do, I think we would see like a renaissance. Oh my yeah. God! Yeah, it, and it, it, creativity. I mean, there'd be one hundred percent. But we're just talking about just just for the arts just alone. Just the arts alone. Yeah. Getting rid of uh, the student loan debt. I know for me personally, like if I suddenly owed, you know, fifty thousand dollars less for a school I didn't even get to graduate from because I wasn't able to continue to pay to keep going, like mm-hmm. I would be able to spend all of that money on like classes for something that would make me a better writer or like you know I'd be able to like just 
do so I could invest in myself like that right. money and that is true of so many like college kids that are like going in right now into the industry that it's just like they can't afford a lot of like you know unpaid internships that type of stuff like mm-hmm. it's really difficult to afford to be in this industry for a lot of people so that that's a huge deal yeah and I think that there's a lot of things that play because so first and foremost it's sort of American society and how we treat creatives and we of course praise them as being geniuses if they are successful and are making money and that's how we measure success but I think uh, for the most part we sort of label them as being frivolous and following frivolous things and I recently got to travel to Ireland and I spent some time with my friends who are writers out there and they were telling me, I was shocked to discover this, that um, the government over there is so supportive, especially of writers, but so supportive of artists in general, that um, there is something where if you are declaring yourself on your taxes as a writer and you have, you know, you're working, that um, the first 50,000 pounds of your yearly income is tax-free because so you cool. are pursuing your destiny and your career. And I thought that was so great. They, of course, were like, move here. And I went, I've heard. Uh, husband. Um, (laughs) Hold up. Um, But then, you know, I think secondly, to go back to what you were saying earlier about like how hard it is to break in, I think that there is this belief and there's a lot of truth behind this belief, but that a career in the arts, especially as a writer, is very tenuous. I am making a living, but I I can't shake the feeling that I'm holding on by the skin of my teeth um, because it is so project based and I truly don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. As I mentioned, I feel like an email could come in at any moment and change my life. And that's where I'm at right now. And so I think with that in mind, when you're thinking about the healthcare or lack of healthcare that you have, I'm also a woman who is um, of uh, an age where becoming a mother is is something that is very much breathing down my back and around the corner. And I find it difficult to make those decisions in sync with my rising up in my career. I do feel like they're at odds. And I feel like I'm part of an industry, even though the WGA is so great, and I'm a very new member of it, and I've loved it so far. The screenings are great. But I feel like (laughs) healthcare-wise, I do feel a little bit adrift. And it has... Um, it's given me anxiety because I, I, I feel like I can't ever have kids. Well, yeah, I mean, the health, it is great healthcare, but it is, again, you know, you have to keep, like, yeah. and it's hard to find these jobs. And it's, and you know, the thing is with our business right now, like when I, the best advice I would give to somebody is like in this day and age is like, well, really a lot of people are just doing their own thing. And, yeah. and, you know, you, it, I think that is a possibility, but again, that doesn't help you healthcare wise. But the thing I wanted uh, that I was also saying about just the family friendliness, and I do think this is going to happen more like when Shonda Rhimes became sort of this mogul, she made her, uh, I think her, it's a little bit more family friendly. I, I do think that a lot of this was set up for men. And, you know, I, Absolutely. I, as, as I was working in um, agencies, I, there were, I would see these women who would be very successful. They were superstar writers. And, you know... If you are very successful and you're a superstar writer and like I, I I'm not going to mention names, but there was this one woman who was very good and developed a show with a man and it went on to be a big hit. And then but she had a kid and she had a very supportive husband who was willing to be the primary caregiver at a certain point for, for and she was fine with it to a point. But I feel like at a certain point, once she had made enough money where it was like, I don't need any more money, I'm. 
she she quit and the mm-hmm. the man that she went on that she created with went on to become a very huge mogul mm-hmm. and i thought she could have been a mogul but you know most people when you have a kid you you can you can make these sacrifices of like i'm going to go two months on project runway because you know right. like you, they always say i'm doing it for my kid yeah. right. and so but the thing is is that what happens when you get the success and now you've got all the money or and it's it, it's yeah. you know it's always like feast or famine but there there are like so i'm just saying that we're losing some of our really great successful women who who do make it to where it's like okay well now you've made all this money you don't need anymore it's hard to continue saying, well, it's best for my family that I continue working. And so they stop. You and can't just do it because you love it. Yeah. Right. And it should be. It should be that they just and, love it. And that lessens the pool of influential women right. showrunners that you could point to because, you know, as a writer, and I'm sure uh, you as well, Allie, having conversations of who do you look up to? Who do you want to model your career after? And honestly, it takes me a minute to pull the female names. The first names are male. And then I go, well, what about this person? What about it's it's harder. And, you know, we just have less of those examples to kind of point to, I think, because of the problem you're describing. Yeah. I mean, when I worked in um, live action, our hours were 10 in the morning till two in the morning, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, it's always going to be a business that has really crazy hours. But I don't think it has to be like that. The weirdest thing was we would have, you know, um, the tech guys or, you know, like the grips and stuff, they are their union would mm-hmm. be like you you couldn't have less than a 12 hour turnaround it would be like well if you want them in at 10 in the morning you got to let them go by 10 p.m. which i feel like okay that's livable <laughs> you know <laughs> and, but it was so weird that riders didn't have that same kind of right. it was like okay well see you guys you guys <laughs> got to go home and get your rest and we will be here until this thing gets done which might be i mean i've heard of people working till three or four in the morning and, oh, that's yeah. not when you're most effective creatively i will say <laughs> i know that's controversial yeah <laughs> but uh, you heard it here first <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, I do think that it is something that as we get more women in power but also if you know the men in power if they if they truly want to um make it a place that you know women thrive, then this is something that needs to be addressed, too. So, Mm. everybody, make sure you vote for someone who has your best interests. uh, And and also vote with empathy, because it's not just you that you're voting for. It's everybody. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but Use use your brain. Use your heart. And and there are many helpful quizzes, too. Now we're just talking about general politics, election stuff. But there are many quizzes that you can take online that are reputable that um, can help you sort of decide on who that person that represents your beliefs is, because you may not know. And you might be asking, why are you talking about politics on a podcast, Uh, aside from the reasons we laid out, which is this is how, you know, affects the writers, your shows wouldn't exist without so-and-so writing it. Uh, But also, I always talk about, and other people talk about it even better than I do, how much who the president is affects comedy. And it's not just in terms of people making fun of Trump. It means that the whole culture shifts in a way with uh, with fashion and and just, you know, freedom and, and just the way that people act will influence comedy forever. All you have to do is look at, you know, look this up on YouTube, read a book about it. You will find how uh, when when Obama is president, suddenly the fashion goes this way, the comedy goes this way. It's going to blow your mind. Like, if we have a really cool president who has us, uh, you know, 
who is supporting us, like comedy yeah. will we will have a renaissance. It Seventy-two will... degrees of president. Yeah, just it'll be dope. Cool <laughs> yeah. customer. Um, and, you I know, agree. If, if things like um, universal health care, it, it is like it's every other industrialized. Co- country has it and so it can't it's not an impossible thing no and and people saying things like well if we get rid of the insurance companies what will they you know what about those people's jobs but you know england brought itself out of the great depression with socialized medicine there will be many (laughs) new jobs and um i i do think that like part of why this country is so angry and divisive right now is because people are really being affected. It's it's not it's people have less a sense of humor about things yeah. because shit's not funny any because like yeah. there's some <laughs> real things happening and so everybody is arguing from a, a very personal sad scared place and yeah. and it, we can't really like comedy does need to be a little pushing the boundaries and a little bit you know it's it's got to get into some of those taboos and things right. like that but you know it's harder to go into those places when the people that you might be bumping up against and they're all everybody's hurting yeah exactly. and yeah. it's so easily to hurt people because this this world we've created right now is so many people are hurting. <laughs> I know. That's exactly right. So in, in we're going to hope uh, that, you know, uh, in the coming months that we uh, have a more optimistic idea of what's going to happen with the presidency and, and kind of where things are going to go with the WGA and different things that are happening. But until then, uh, in the kind of current state of the world, uh, can you leave us with uh, some advice for, for writers that are coming in or maybe even just people that are already in the business but maybe could use a little bit? Of, uh, of of guidance like as well. Me. <laughs> well, you know, and it's it's so interesting. I was just thinking there is this weird little paradox. I do think one. I think it is true that it's never too late. It's never too late to if you if you're pursuing your dream and you're an older person. I mean, there there are novelists who start in their seventies. That's yeah. amazing. Um, so there's that. So always know that. But at the same time, this is the paradoxical part. I always say too late is going to come closer than you sooner than you think. And that's that's always sort of my little mantra when I'm writing. And it never actually is too late. But I, you know, just know there is a limited time to. Yeah, use your time while you, you know, have it. Yeah, there yeah. is the Flaubert. It's a quote that I put in my office, and it it just says, "Produce, produce, produce." For I tell you, the night is coming. Mm. Yes, and, yeah, uh, that's great. I, I always really love think that. of. I'm sure, we've all listened to the Hamilton soundtrack, <laughs> but I always think of, and even though the context of it is not exactly what this meaning is, but I, I think of how they describe Hamilton as writing as if he's running out of time, and I always think about that in regards to my own writing, not to make it feel anxious, mm-hmm. but just like. You know, there's no resting on your laurels. There's mm-hmm. no sitting waiting for the call. You got to make the call happen for yourself. Or if you have an idea for something, to just do it. And if you fail, you fail fantastically, and then you learn from that and go. There's no use in just sort of sitting and you waiting. Know, you know, it, it's so interesting because uh, there's always that adage they say that like on your deathbed, you're yeah. you're not going to be thinking, oh, I wish I worked more. I wish I, you're going to be thinking you, you spent more time with your family, which I do think is very very true. But I will say I had a friend who is a uh, fine artist and um, 
and, and very successful, but he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, which he actually beat. But at <gasps> the time, when he was cons- you know worried about what might happen, I will say that I do think watching him, I do think that for artists, that does become a thing <laughs> that like that on his wasn't his deathbed, but being faced with that. His thought was, I need to do more work. Yeah. And and I do think that that is true of artists, that you, you do, that is an important thing for you. Well, because I think the adage previous is like working for someone else. For money. But and, working for money. And but success it's, or whatever it, This is working for your own soul and the souls of other people that you want to find in the world. It's to get this thing out. Yeah. So listeners, don't wait Write the iTunes review now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't wait to subscribe, Make... rate and review. <laughs> Don't wait to tweet at us. Make and say the donation how much you love today. Us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank You'll you. Thank it. you for bringing us home, Allie. <laughs> Don't. Oh, you gotta. Um, this has been so much fun. It's such a joy talking to you. Um, um, you as well. We we should do this again and record it just for kicks. Okay. But <laughs> just want to talk, but I, I think know. everyone wants to to hear it. Maybe it's so cocktails fun. next time. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Is there uh, anything that you could plug or anything that you're excited about that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'm about to have I'm about to launch my website. <laughs> <That's> Amazing, ridiculous. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a little late in the game, I would say. Uh, yes, <laughs> no, I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I just was looking for a place to put. Um, I, I have a bunch of stories of my time as a writer and as, as a cheerleader in Hawaii. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We didn't even uh, get on aspects, that. But, uh, yeah. That's so, so cool. What is the website going to be called? It's The address right now is uh, carolinomine.com. Great. Uh, but, but it's not up yet. Not up yet. It might. That's it's, so basically, it's like this is how I remember it. Is and, the name of it. and did you do uh, because you you have a graphic design background? Did you build your own site? Did you do any of your? No. Okay, but you have the eye for it. I, I you know when I, to delegate. I know it to when it else. didn't look good. <laughs> That's perfect. I knew how to complain. There you go. <laughs> Great. Uh, and then where could people find you online? I am on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram, but it's O-H-M-I-N-E. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. This was a blast. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. And Julia, where can people find you? <gasps> thank you so much for asking. I'm actually impressed on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. You can find me at Allie Gertz and all the things. And you can find us at Simpsons Pod. And make sure to leave us a review on iTunes, because why not? Why not? You're already there. Just do it. (laughs) Uh, Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We're a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute. This episode was engineered by Jordan Cowling. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio. And senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.